Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. This morning we're going to look at verses 25 through 37. If you're just joining us, we're in the midst of a fall sermon series entitled Encounters with Jesus, and we've been considering these various encounters that take place between people and Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, uh, we come upon one that is probably quite familiar uh, to most of us in the room. I would venture to say that I doubt anyone in here has never heard the phrase, Good Samaritan. I think it's almost American that we know that we have been called to be Good Samaritans. And yet, um, you know, when we think about what it means to be a Good Samaritan, I think we typically think about something like, that we've been called to be a good person or we've been called to be nice to other people. Or we might even say that we've been called to be kind to strangers, that that's the kind of people that we're supposed to be. And if you really thought about it a little bit more, then you might say, well, this seems like a strange encounters with Jesus because that's a parable. And we've been talking about people who meet Jesus. And yet that parable is something that Jesus shares with someone whom he encounters. You see, context is everything. One of the things I hope that you'll notice this morning about this story that perhaps is all too familiar is that we actually miss the essence of what it's about. It's not a heartwarming story. It's not a feel-good parable. It's not a, hey, I want to lift you up. It's not even one of those parables where it's a kind of an attaboy. Let's get out there and get after it. Let's all kind of cheer one another on. Let's be a little bit better than we were last week. That's not what this parable is about. It's really disturbing. It's unsettling. Uh, it's, it's shocking. Because what it does is it challenges what we think we already know. And I would say at the essence of this parable is what we need to consider is this, what it means to be a neighbor. What does it mean to be a neighbor? That's what I want us to consider together this morning. So if you would give attention as I read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands fair. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would open up our hearts, that we might behold marvelous things from your word. Pray that you would help us to receive your truth and that you would, uh, Lord, give it to us with so much grace, a grace that would change us and transform us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know, it's probably been maybe six years ago, I'm not really sure, but one of the things I've noticed that is a uh, regular occurrence in my life is that I tend to be a magnet for people who need something. And so they just spot me. If we're at a restaurant or if we're at a store or if we're walking down the sidewalk, people just see me and they come up and they ask for something. And I was uh, dressed up in kind of uh, my non-normal uh, everyday work attire. I was wearing, kind of dressed up in church clothes, and I was walking into Walmart to the hunting and sporting goods section because there was something I was going to get. And this uh, lady, who was clearly a refugee and not from the United States, uh, stopped me in my tracks as I was walking into the store. I was, I was in a hurry. I had things to do. And um, she couldn't speak English. She had a friend with her, but she, was, she had this uh, paper in her hands, and essentially she wanted me to read it because she needed my help. And I thought to myself, oh, I've got a solution to this, because I was actually uh, got connected when I was working at Providence. I got connected with a ministry uh, over the phone. It was a very deep connection. It was something that happened over the phone with a ministry called North Dallas Shared Ministries. And so I knew that I had a flyer in my car, and all I had to do was pull the flyer out and give the flyer to the lady, and all of her problems would be solved when actually I knew uh, that they weren't going to solve any of her problems because she wasn't in the proper zip code. But it, it felt like if I were to do that, it would seem as though I was helping her to some degree. So I went to my car and I said, hang on just a second. I was looking for the flyer that wasn't going to be helpful, but it was going to look like it was helpful. And I was going to give it to the lady. And um, the lady said, you know, hold on, hold on. And she kind of had something written down and she really wanted me to read it. And so I looked at the paper, and basically what it says was that she was a refugee, uh, that she was over here uh, by herself, only with her children, that her husband was trying to get over here, but that she was in desperate need for food and diapers. And what she wanted me to do was either to give her money or to go on the shopping spree throughout Walmart. Now, as I was talking to her, I was overwhelmed with... Uh, like, I was just deep in thought. There was so much angst going on inside of me because I was trying to figure out what to do about it. I was wondering, is this just not another one of those examples of someone who's trying to take advantage of me? Is this, you know, is this lady really legit? Does she really have these needs? And, you know, ultimately what I was really wrestling with was this. Is she really my responsibility? I mean, I don't even know her. I was coming to the sporting goods section. Now, I want to ask you a question. What would you have done if she would have met you as you were going into Walmart? Or maybe let me ask you another question. What if I told you that I saw her and that I actually was able to put my hands on the flyer and I was able to put the flyer in her hands and that I told her that, you know, I was so sorry that I couldn't do more but that these people could help you? Um, and what if I said that that's all I did? Then my question for you is what would you think of me? I mean, not just what would, you know, part of what I'd wonder is what would you say to me if I was sharing that story with you over a cup of coffee? Um, 
what I would venture to say is that most of you over a cup of coffee would have said, man, you were in a tough spot. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I would have done. Y'all, I, and all, basically, I think what you would have done is probably let me off the hook. Now, let me ask you this question. What if you were talking to me, or what if you were talking to someone else who was a Christian, and they don't necessarily have to be a pastor, but someone who actually claims to follow Jesus, and what if, A, they told you the same story, first, what would you say to them if they hadn't helped the lady, and then, B, what would you say to me or to them if they told you that they never read the Bible, and that they never prayed? And that they tried to go to church when they could, but they often missed church because they were traveling and they were out of town. And what would you say if they told you that they, you know, they tried to repent as much as they could and they said that they were sorry for things, but that they actually couldn't really remember anything that they were really that repentant of because they couldn't really remember anything recently that they had done wrong? What would you say to someone like that? Now, we might be cowardly. We might not say anything to them, but I think we would be very concerned for people like that. You see, there's things about the Christian life that we think are absolutely fundamental and absolutely essential and primary, and those are things like reading our Bibles and praying and repenting and going to worship. You know, if someone was to ask us what's the main thing about Christianity, perhaps those of us who kind of use our Presbyterian confessions might say something like this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That the main thing, the main purpose of the Christian life is love for God. But we also know that there's a second commandment that accompanies the first. And Jesus talks about both of these. Actually, the man's the one who provides them. There are two kind of scripture passages that pop up in this text. One from Deuteronomy 6 and the other from Leviticus 19. And it's this concept of the Christian life can be summarized in these two commandments. Love for God and love for neighbor. Of course, then that demands us to ask the question, okay, well, what, when we think about love for God, we think about the things I've already listed. Reading our Bibles, prayer, uh, going to church, repenting, forgiving, those kinds of things. When we think about love for neighbor, what does that mean? And I think that's one of those things that we like to prefer to keep. Uh, we like some flexibility there. We want to believe that each person can define that question for himself or for herself. We kind of like to keep love for neighbor nebulous, don't we? Like, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, you know, loving your neighbor is kind of, it's different for each person. It's kind of, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's what works for you. It's what it means for you. It's your own personal truth. It's your own personal understanding of that. We like to keep it nebulous. The problem is that Jesus doesn't keep it nebulous. Jesus is very clear about what it means to love your neighbor. You'll remember that he says that this is the essence of what it means to be a follower of him. You'll remember in Matthew's gospel at the very end where he says, he tells this story about how, you know, at the end, I will, you know, there'll be someone and I'll say, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in and I was naked and he clothed me and I was sick and in prison and you came and visited me. And this all happens in Matthew chapter 25. And then you know, Jesus. And then we'll say, or the person will say, oh, well, when did I see you hungry or naked, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus will say, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. 
And then you'll remember that Jesus says, there'll also be those who he'll say that I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. And I was naked and you didn't give me any clothes. And I was sick and in prison and you didn't come to visit me. And then we'll say, Lord, when do we see you in all these circumstances? And he'll answer this. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then perhaps these are the harshest words some of the harshest words ever recorded in Scripture. And these will go away into eternal punishment. So what, I want, what I'm trying to say is, is try to give us a little bit of context. When we think about the essence of the Christian life, we think about love for God. But Jesus also wants us to think very seriously about love for neighbor. What's that all about? Well, one of the things this bedrock here at Mercy, and it's on the front of our bulletin every week, is that we firmly believe in this principle of mercy to us, mercy through us. That our experience of God's mercy is always accompanied by an expression of God's mercy. Please understand that. Please, I want you to wrestle with that. I want you to either believe it or wrestle with it or struggle with it, but please don't discard it. Our experience of mercy, if you are a believer, is always accompanied by a real expression of mercy. Those two things are in, inseparable. They're absolutely connected with one another. And that's what this passage is inviting us to see. And so there's a number of questions I want us to consider. I'm not going to give them all to you at the start. We're going to take them each in turn. There's actually only three. But the first thing I want us to consider together is the question, who is my neighbor? We're all asking the question, right? Who is my neighbor? Well, uh, Let's look together. There, the context is in verse 25. There's a lawyer, which would have meant someone who was a religious expert, someone who was an expert in the law and talking about religious law. And this lawyer stands up out of respect. And it's real clear what his uh, intention is here. It says to put him to the test. He's got an agenda. And so he's going to ask Jesus a question that he already knows the answer to, presumably, and his desire, first and foremost, is to put Jesus in his place. And so he asks them the question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And one of the things that is like so masterful about Jesus is he does what he so often does, and he responds with a question. He responds in verse 26, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, you got to understand, this is like a softball down the middle. This is like elementary, my dear Watson. This is child's play. This is chump. This is like the total chump question because this guy, you could wake him up in the middle of the night and he'll remember Deuteronomy 6.5 and he'll remember Leviticus 19.18. This is something that he like, he was brought up on this stuff when he was just an infant. And so he responds and says, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But he couldn't leave it alone. He, of course, Jesus, I guess, had this way about him, and so this man is drawn further into this conversation. And look, what's it, look what it says. Verse 28, um, he sa Jesus says, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But the man had to go in a little further. Verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, you know, it's like if I'm sitting there and I'm telling you about this lady that I ran into in Walmart 
And I'm telling you how, you know, I just was torn because I was just sure she was taking advantage of me. When I kind of spin it that way, you got to understand the thing that I'm looking for from you is for you to, I'm trying to justify myself. I'm looking for your approval. I'm looking for you to say, it's okay. I'm looking for you to say, I think you made the right decision. And this man needs to be justified. This man needs to be told that he is in the right, that he has done all that is required of him. And so desiring to justify himself He says to Jesus, the question of the hour, and who is my neighbor? And do you notice what Jesus does? He tells a story, but the story ends with what? It ends with a question. It ends with a question. If you look all the way down at the very end of the story, he says in verse 36, in which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Um, Jesus answers the man's question, with a question, but of course the question is uh, packaged with a story or with a parable. Now, why does the man ask the question, who is my neighbor? Like, what's the agenda? What's his intention? What's the purpose behind asking that question? Well, we know what it is. Let's just think a little bit. Let's all be kind of normal folk here. He's trying to narrow in his focus. He's trying to determine out of all the people on the face of the earth, who are those people who he's responsible for? Who are those people that are his neighbor or his neighbors? It presupposes that there are some people on this earth who are our neighbors. And that there are other people on this earth who are not our neighbors. Do you understand? It's it's presupposed that there are two groups of people. There are some people that fall in group A. They are our neighbors. There are other people who fall in group B. They are not our neighbors. There are those that we have a responsibility for. There are those that we do not have a responsibility for. Do you understand? That's what's going on here. He's trying to whittle it down. It's like, um, you know, he's trying to get his yardage, so to speak. He's trying to figure out what he has to do, what he has to accomplish. He's trying to figure out how big the box is that he has to check. And um, so that's his question. And Jesus answers with a question. Now, he tells this story, and he, I think this is incredible because maybe, perhaps Jesus had this in his back pocket, but, I mean, just on the spot to, like, weave out this story, this is unbelievable. And we could spend a long time looking at all the connection points in the story, which we won't do this morning. But I'm, I, you could sp- easily spend the next year just mining the riches out of this story. But this is what Jesus says. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus brings this very familiar scene. You know, for us, it would be like Jesus is telling us about a very familiar part of our city, a part of our city that we're aware of is a very dangerous place that people, but though it's dangerous, it's a well-traveled area. And he's talking about this journey that people would have taken from Jerusalem to Jericho when they're coming back from worship with God's people. So they're walking down this road that was this very sharp descent. It was 17 miles long. It was treacherous, it had a lot of blind spots, it had a lot of caves along the way, and it was a place for, you know, bandits and robbers and thieves and people that were seeking to do harm to those that were traveling this road. It was nicknamed the Pass of Blood. So Jesus puts before this lawyer a very uh, probable scene, a probable scenario, and he says, and so there's this guy, and he's walking down, and he's attacked, and he's stripped, and he's beat. And he's there's no clothes on. He's naked. He's on the side of the road, and he's left half dead. And then he says, um, "But there was this priest. Look what it says, verse thirty-one. 
But now by chance, a priest was going down that road. So you've got this priest, and that would have been thinkable because the priest is coming down from worship, and he's riding down on his donkey or his, you know, some type of a, an animal that would have, you know, he could have ridden on the back of. Uh, priests were in the upper class, so the priest would absolutely not have been walking. The priest would have been riding. And so the priest is riding down this road, and he comes upon this incredible dilemma because he sees this man who has been beaten and left to die on the side of the road. Now, a couple of things that are challenging about this for the priest. Number one, the man was naked, and so in, you know, in the Middle East, it would have been very hard for the priest to know what kind of man this was without being able to talk to him without being able to see how he was dressed because the way that people signaled their ethnicity was through their speech and through their dress. But the priest can't determine what ethnicity this man is. He's got some other problems too because he gets paid for doing his job. And if he goes and he gets near this man who is very much unclean, then he's going to become ritually contaminated because there are rules that a priest couldn't have contact with a dead body. They had to maintain at least six feet. And so he's going to be out of work for a while because he's got to go through all kinds of hoops and pay all kinds of cost in order to get clean all over again. Now, but there's also some other rules that applied to priests. The priests were called to bury a neglected corpse, and that would have been something he'd have been familiar with. And there was also no... Uh, there was nothing that stood in the way of his obligation to save a life. And so if the man actually were still living, then the priest would have been uh, totally free to go and come to the man's aid. But what does he do? It says he departed and he leaves him half dead. He, he departs and passes by, excuse me, passes by on the other side. And then he brings a Levite. Levite obviously were that uh, class of Israelite who were set apart to uh, work alongside of the priest and to do this, the temple care. And so verse 32, it says, So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw the man, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the Levite, he had fewer cleanliness laws that he had to observe, but he still had a number of laws. And this would have been incredibly inconvenient for him to have to be pure all over again. The other thing he knew was, and it, the way that Jesus tells the story, it presupposes that the Levite must have known that the priest was in front of him. And so he knew the priest had passed him by. And so the Levite, too, passes by on the other side. You've got these two men who have been clearly set apart for ministry. And what happens? They both determine that this man who has been beaten, robbed, and left for half dead is not their neighbor. Do you understand that? They both determine that this man is not their neighbor. Now, it's easy for us to lob bombs on them, right? But let's don't do that because that wouldn't be smart or wise of us because we use the same criteria, the same basis, so to speak, to determine who our neighbors are. You see, there are a lot of reasons why this didn't work for these, the priest and the Levite to help this man. And it was because it was going to be costly. It was because it was inconvenient. Perhaps they were in a hurry. They had places to go. And those are all the same reasons that we give for not helping people that we find in our way. And I'm not just talking about the person who's broken down on the side of the road or the person holding the sign at the end of an exit. I'm talking about people that you know. I'm talking about people you really know. I'm not just talking about the strangers. I'm even talking about regular folks. We determine whether or not we can... Uh, someone's a neighbor based on whether or not we have time or resources 
for them. And then Jesus does what Jesus is so prone to do, doesn't he? And he throws them a curveball. Because in verse 33, the man, if there was another person coming along, it would have had to have been another Jew, right? But it's not a Jew. It's a Samaritan. They were the half-breeds. Like, it's hard for me to communicate to you just how hated the Samaritans were by the Jews. They were absolutely their enemies. The, the Jews were disgusted by the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. I mean, they called them half-breeds after all. That's terrible. And so this Samaritan comes along, and he, uh, he does something altogether different. Look what it says. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end. And took care of him. You see, there's this Jewish mentality that um, our spiritual or religious rightness is rooted in our um, segregation, our separation, our, our isolation, our staying away from things and people who are unclean, or maybe in our common jargon, we stay away from bad people and bad things and bad places. Now, okay. Do think about this for a minute. I mean, think about how you raise your children, okay? Because I would say this, not that we want our children to do a bunch of bad things, but I just want us to think about it for a minute, that we actually kind of think deep down that our right standing before God is rooted in staying away from bad people, bad places, and bad things, and bad people. You know, that, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. But the Samaritan has this new ethic, and so here's the question I want you to think about. Why did the Samaritan stopped. Why did he stop? Because he knew that this man was his neighbor. That's why he stopped. Because he knew this man was his neighbor. I don't know whether or not he knew Leviticus 19.18, uh, that you're called to love your neighbor as yourself, but he knew this man was his neighbor. Um, all right, I want to think about this for a minute, and I really love to drill down here, but I don't want to drill down too much. I, <clears throat> um, I don't want this kiss all worked up in a frenzy here, okay? I want to bring the heat too hard down here. But I just, let's all for a minute, let's tune in, let's listen to this, let's think about this. Don't think about other people. Don't think about your friends or the person sitting next to you. Don't think about your spouse. Think about you. And I want us to think about for ourselves how it is that we determine who is our neighbor. Um, I think it's really easy for me, and I would suggest that I think it's really easy for you to write off most of the people that you come into contact with on a very regular basis as not being your neighbor, as not being your responsibility. Uh, which means that if they're not your responsibility, what does that mean? That means that they're someone else's responsibility. And I would suggest to you that we're not really that different from the priest and the Levite, or really, in this situation, more the lawyer, where we try to whittle down those that would fall into this section of people, this category of people that would be categorized as our neighbors. We try to limit it as much as we can. And it's interesting because the people that tend to fall into that category of neighbor, the number one, the list is usually very manageable. And number two, they're usually people that don't put us in a state of inconvenience, that aren't too costly, that don't, you know, disturb our comfort, uh, that don't really trouble us too much. 
And then one of the things that we typically do is exactly the same thing the lawyer does. We try to justify in our hearts that it's okay that this is as large as our neighbor pool has grown to, right? We do that. Um, And then here's the thing, you know, I'm not even, I am concerned about all the people in the world, but I would rather, let's move from the lesser to the greater. Let's just focus on the lesser for a minute. You know, one of the things that is heavy on my heart is, I mean, Mercy's not really that large of a church. I mean, this room isn't even packed out this morning, and that's not a bad thing, but um, I think I know most of the people that are here. I don't know everyone that's here, but there's some visitors. But one of the things that's wonderful about the shape of this room is how it's kind of a half circle. So you can actually see the people that are over there, and you can see the people that are over there. But we've got all these people in this room, and we don't even know everybody's name. We don't even know the names of the people that come. You can come 15 times, and we don't even know the names. And one of the reasons we don't know the names is because they're not our neighbor. Much less, we don't, not only do we not know their names, we don't know their needs. We don't know their needs because we don't know them. And, and though we might not really want to say the next thing, the reason we don't know their names and we don't know their needs is because we don't really care. That would seem ugly. We would say, well, it's not because we don't really care. It's because we're really busy. It's because we have really a lot of stuff going on. But I would suggest to you the reason we don't is because we don't really think those people are our neighbors. And that's troubling because we would then be saying that, oh, well, the reason that they're not our neighbors is because they're someone else's responsibility. Now, I don't really want to go any further on that right now. I want to say that Jesus does something actually masterful because the main question of the passage is actually not, who is my neighbor? But what Jesus does is he refocuses the attention on the lawyer, of the lawyer and he refocuses our attention on this concept. And this is the concept I want you to think about, what it means to be a neighbor. You see, the question is not really who is my neighbor. It's not about the category of people that fall under my responsibility. The focus of the passage is not on who is my neighbor, but on what it means to be a neighbor. And so the question is, what does it mean to be a neighbor? Well, we see it really clearly. It's amazing because it's all about action. At our house, you know, Friday nights are really tough because we're trying to figure out a movie. And, um, you know, Kendall likes certain kinds of movies. And Kendall and Simeon and I like other kinds of movies. And Wells is gone, so it's, you know, two guys against one. And so I feel sorry for Kendall. And so we typically talk her into an action movie because, man, I'm all about the action. I don't, I don't. I don't want to yawner. I'm all about the action. And you know what? Neighboring is all about the action. <laughs> so look at it. That's what I mean. It's amazing all this person does, this Samaritan. Look what it says. It says that he came to where he was, so he comes to him. He sees him. His heart is filled with compassion. He goes to him. He binds up his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He sets him on his own animal. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him at the inn. Then he takes out two denarii, which would have been two months' worth of stays at this inn. He pays the innkeeper. He gives the innkeeper instructions. He says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll pay him back. I'll pay you back for it. And then he says he's coming back. It's all action. It's not like he does one thing. He does a bunch of things. He, sees, he comes to the scene. He sees him. He feels compassion. He goes to him. He moves toward this person, and perhaps... You know, that's what it looks like to be a neighbor. I mean, you have to see them. You have to hear them. You have to move toward them. You have to engage them. You have to get to know them. You have to see them as someone who is your responsibility. 
And look what Jesus says at the end, because he helps us to understand what it means to be a neighbor. And which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer answers rightly. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, in order to be a neighbor, we have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We have to have feet that are willing to go. We have to have hearts that are filled with compassion. We have to have hands that are ready to help. Hands that are ready to get dirty. Now, I thought about a bunch of practical things I could give you this morning. I'm not going to do that. There's a lot of ways. If you want to talk about some practical ways that we could be neighbors, I would love to talk to you about that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. The last question I want us to focus on is, so how do we do that, right? So how do we um, be good neighbors? How do we show this mercy? How do we go and do likewise? And I think... um, One of the reasons I don't want to drill down too much on that first point was because if I drill down too much further, and if you were listening and your heart was beating and you were being honest, then you had to have been feeling some measure of kind of like guilt or conviction. Like, I just don't know how you couldn't. I feel it. Um, And, you know, I think sometimes we come to these stories and we're like, man, Sometimes people say stuff like this, man, I really need to hear that. You know, you brought it this morning, man. Thanks for laying it down. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's just code for, man, I really felt guilty this morning, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to ride the wave of Jesus. Uh, that wave, guilt, is going to carry me all the way to the end. And, of course, guilt won't carry you to the front door of the building. So if all you feel is guilty, uh, then you'll never know what it means to be a neighbor. And then others of us are just, we're just those go get them type people. And so some of you are like, well, you know what? I'm going to get a list out. I'm going to start thinking of some creative ways and some practical ways that I can get after it. And so we, our strategy is rooted in grit. But I would say to you that that won't work either. You know, part of the problem is that we see this parable primarily as principles to live by. We see this parable primarily as an instruction manual on how to be a good neighbor. Now, let me take you back to Walmart, because I'm sitting there, this lady, she's giving me this note. She's telling me that she needs uh, food and diapers for her children. And everything inside of me, I'm sorry to say, does not want help. But there's just something that just I just knew I needed to. So I took her inside, and we got a buggy and a cart. And I said, all right, what do we need to get first? And she said, well... I need, some, I need some vegetables. So we go over to the fruit and vegetable section, and every time she grabbed up an item, she looked at me and asked me, like, with, with her eyes, like, is it okay if I put this in the basket? And I'm like, it's okay. Go ahead and get it. You know, can I get more than one? It's okay. Go ahead and get it. So then we kept going. We didn't get any junk food. We didn't get any Twizzlers, stuff like I like to get. We didn't go to, like, the adult beverage section, which I know very well in Walmart. You know, we didn't go to, like, the candy bar aisle or the ice cream. We, def- we didn't do any of that. We were going to only, like, the food staple, like, the Whole30 section. And so we're going there, and we're getting all these, these really important items. And um, so then she looks at me, and she says, uh, she needs some diapers. She says, can we get some diapers? It's been a while since Wells and Simeon were in diapers. Whew. Did not know diapers were so expensive. But we go back to the diaper, and now I'm feeling like, okay, well, I can't be like, you know, this miserly person. So I'm like, all right, let's get the jumbo pack. I'm feeling like, you know, let's, let's, go, let's go for the gold here. Let's go for the gusto. So she grabs the jumbo pack of diapers, and we throw them in the cart. And then she says, 
I need some bottles. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> I'd feel really bad if we only bought one bottle, but we don't need 15 bottles now, do we? So let's get the, like, three-pack. It's somewhere kind of in the middle because what you need to understand is all I'm thinking about right now inside literally is how much this is costing me. I'm thinking, like, right now we're probably at, like, the $50 mark, you know, and that's all right. We can do the $50 mark for a stranger. So then um, she says that she needs, she says, I need an, how about an outfit? I'm like, wow, now we're going to the clothing section. <laughs> I'm like, hey, um, let's, let's, let's hold off on the clothes today. Let's do the clothes on another trip. So we go up to the front to check out, and uh, the cashier starts ringing us up, and we get over $100. And um, I pay for it all, and we walk out to the parking lot, and as we're walking out, I'm just thinking about the fact that, man, I just spent over $100 on this stranger, and I'm, feeling, I'm not feeling happy about it. I'm not feeling good about it. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm feeling way too self-righteous to take it all back, but I'm feeling, like, torn up over it. And the lady looks at me with, you know, I wouldn't say the smile was as big as or wide as Texas, but it was a really big, genuine smile. And she says, thank you. And I get in the car, and I go my way. Now, I tell that story because here's the problem. I did something that on the surface was good, but at the heart really wasn't. And what I didn't understand is what the lawyer doesn't understand and what I would suggest that a lot of you in the room don't understand. Because what I thought was that this story was primarily principles to live by. It was an instruction manual on how to follow Jesus so to speak. What I didn't understand is this, that this passage is not primarily for you, but this passage is primarily about you. You see, I wasn't able to relate with the woman because I thought I was different than she was. Do you understand that? I thought I was different than she was. I didn't understand that I was exactly the same as her. And I would suggest to you that you don't understand that either. That we look at these people who are down on their luck or downtrodden or however you want to say it. We look at these people that are stacked up trying to get into the United States. And I'm not going to get off on refugees, but let's just use that because it's relevant. It's here. And we look at those people and we do not believe that they are exactly the same as we are. You see, this passage is primarily about us because we are this man who has been overtaken by the robbers. We are those who have been stripped and beaten and left for dead. And who comes along? Of course, it's not just the good Samaritan, but it's the great Samaritan. Who had every reason to pass us by because we were his enemies. The scripture is very clear about that. Our hearts were hostile toward him. We had been, we had been robbed and stripped and beaten and left for dead by sin. But what happened? Jesus, the great Samaritan, he saw us. And he felt this deep sense of compassion for us. And instead of moving away from us, he moved toward us. And what did he do? He bound up our wounds. And the whole, all the prophets were about the one who was going to come and bind up the wounds of those who are broken. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And boy, he paid an incredible price, didn't he? It was costly. It wasn't merely inconvenient, but he paid the ultimate price he indeed washed us with, with, 
with wine, but the wine wasn't wine. The wine was his blood that he shed for us on the cross in order to wash away our sin. And what did he do then? He didn't bring us to an end, did he? But, you know, this is one of those past pictures, those passages like um, in John's, John's gospel where he says, in my father's house are many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you. He brings us to the father. He brings us into fellowship with the Trinity. And what does he promise us? That he's coming back again. He's coming back again to make all things new. You see, this passage is primarily about you. It's not just for you. And so we go back to where we started. You see, you'll never express God's mercy until you experience God's mercy. But if you truly understand who you are, if you truly come to grips and you experience the riches of God's mercy shown to you in Christ, then His mercy will absolutely be expressed through you.